Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. We come to you a day early this week, ahead of the holiday. It's a welcome break for those of us in the States with plenty to reflect on. This week, our three things are, one, uncertainty. We've got more today than we've had for some time. Two market heavyweights give us updated perspectives. Two, tightening. The Fed's jawboning has been effective. And three, rising distress. Recent movements confirm an up-in-quality view. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. The analogical domain market watchers reach for most often is baseball, as in, we're in the late innings of this credit cycle. But the wonderful world of weather popped up notably this week in J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, describing the economy as strong, but facing, quote, big storm clouds, unquote. That sounds ominous, although the market's clearly focused on the economy is strong part of that statement, at least the day of his announcement. The next day, not so much. Also this week, Guggenheim Investments weighed in meteorologically with skies are only partly cloudy. So how are investors expected to square these two forecasts? Turns out that both acknowledge that there are risk elements out there. Rising inflation, monetary tightening by central banks, and war in Europe, that, together, are as formidable as anything investors have faced in our lifetimes. But both also acknowledge, in their own meteorological way, that their forecast, like that of most weather folks, is far from certain. Mr. Diamond went to great lengths to say that clouds, even big storm clouds, can dissipate. The team over at Guggenheim, led by Scott Minard, their characterization implies that there are some mitigating factors to the risks they see. Mr. Diamond's comments were given at JPM's Investor Day, where the vast majority of time over the course of six hours was spent not on risk, but on growth initiatives, which is either delusional or confident that big storm clouds are more likely to dissipate than end up in a hurricane or tsunami which is, by the way, how Mr. Diamond referred to the global financial crisis. We believe the tone of the presentation and analyst questions were one of confidence that the approaching storm will not be all that disruptive. Much of that confidence is derived from something we talk a lot about, today's relatively strong position, for the most part, of consumers and businesses. Overall, JPM described the credit outlook it sees as remaining positive, with loan losses running at half its long-term average. On the consumer side of things, a strong jobs market, high levels of liquid assets, and record low debt-to-income ratios suggest that the long-awaited normalization in credit losses will take time. Over at Guggenheim, the view is that we are far from stresses that would trigger a default cycle. Using similar context as JPM, They note that today, corporate balance sheets are in good shape with healthy cash holdings that should support investment spending. They point out firms with manageable leverage, an ability to absorb rising labor or energy costs, and minimal exposure to Europe should prove to be quite durable. Guggenheim does worry about the strong dollar, which will lean on firms with non-U.S. revenue exposures. Technical indicators the firm is watching that can signal a turn in the credit cycle, 
include the spread of bond prices within an industry and the compression of credit curves across the rating spectrum. Both are well-behaved, i.e. tight. They're also watching the slowdown in leverage loan and high-yield issuance, which can suggest credit crunch. We're less concerned on this point. Yes, public market issuance has fallen off, but the meteoric rise in direct lending from alternative asset managers has siphoned off considerable credit from traditional markets. As a result, we are less concerned about that last point. Looking ahead, both firms acknowledge that there is considerable uncertainty surrounding the issue of how much the Fed will tighten and the magnitude of the resulting slowdown. Both accept the fact that recession probabilities have risen meaningfully, but neither is suggesting it's fully risk-off. Just time to be a bit more thoughtful about risk-taking. And keep an eye on any updated weather forecast. All right, on to our second thing. Tightening is here. Yes, the Fed has clearly and frequently telegraphed its intention to tighten financial conditions. If anything, its rhetoric has moved away from the pragmatic, as in we will be data-driven, to ideological, as in we are singularly focused on breaking inflation. Needless to say, that newfound hawkishness has spooked markets. So, to channel former New York City Mayor Ed Koch, we'd ask the question, well, how are we doing? Let's start with measures of financial conditions and stress. If we look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Plus Index, which includes the effects of asset bubbles, which this cycle has, and the Chicago Fed National Financial Conditions Index, both suggest that financial conditions remain loose, kind of where we've been for the past 10 years, except for March of 2020. But we are very definitely tightening. The financial stress index of the St. Louis Fed is ticking up, but remains well below average. The Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Survey, which shows whether banks are loosening or tightening loan underwriting standards for large to medium-sized businesses, is holding steady in the latest result after loosening for the previous four quarters. So there is evidence that we are tightening it for sure, but to be clear, markets remain quite accommodative despite the normalization of risk premia. The Fed has clearly deployed jawboning in addition to its rate hikes. Take housing, where the spike in mortgage rates drove a 17% month-over-month and a 27% year-over-year plunge in new home sales in April. And we're seeing some improvement on the inflation front. Wage growth is beginning to cool. We are seeing a shift in purchasing from durable goods, hit particularly hard by the inflationary supply chain constraints, back towards services. We've seen that show up in the results of retailers, where you are starting to see evidence of demand shock. I'm sure all of that helps to explain why the 10-year Treasury yield has fallen 38 basis points over the past three weeks to 2.75%, why the five-year, five-year forward break-even has fallen from 2.57% to 2.19%, a 14-month low. And the monetary contraction as measured by M2 has been powerful eight months of declining year-over-year growth. I guess the point is, economic disruption, the kind that happens in a pandemic, can result in a bout of inflation, especially if there is fiscal stimulus and monetary accommodation. But this does not mean that inflation becomes permanent. Once the shock alleviates and the disruption alleviates, we go back to normal. Don't take our word for it. Here's the Congressional Budget Office's view. And I quote, 
elevated inflation persists in 2022 because of strong demand and restrained supply. After 2022, economic growth slows and inflationary pressures ease, unquote. We don't have to dredge up some spooky label like stagflation from the 1970s. It's just the credit cycle. In yesterday's release of the Fed Minutes, where it was suggested that the central bank could pause after two more 50 basis point hikes, tells us that inflation uncertainty is diminishing. And that should be good for credit markets. All right, on to our third thing, rising distress. Now, public opinion polls tell us that descriptor could apply to a lot of things at the moment. But in this case, we're talking about distressed credit. One of the things we know for sure is that the extraordinary fiscal stimulus and monetary accommodation of the pandemic era preserved a lot of fundamentally weak companies. Moreover, the explicit support to credit markets, effectively a backstop, provided by the Federal Reserve encouraged investors to buy the weakest corporate credits, knowing that cohorts' default rates would be lower than ratings would otherwise suggest. But now, that explicit support is gone, and we would make the case that any implicit support has diminished significantly. Firms are left to stand on their own just as the economic and competitive environment has become more challenging. Sure enough, we've seen an up-in-quality move on the part of investors, and it should come as no surprise that distressed credits, those firms whose credit spreads exceed 1,000 basis points, have increased significantly. Using trace data, The number of distressed issuers reached 189 this week, up from a cycle low of 69 reached at the end of last year. The average post the GFC and pre-pandemic number is 183, so we're back to kind of average. The high during this period was 589 in early 2016, with the bulk of those names concentrated in the energy sector. On this go-around, there's not a sectoral shock playing out, it's more of an economic one, the great deceleration. That is consistent with what our KBRA Altman one-year-forward high-yield default forecast is showing, with that hitting a recent high of 2.65%. This return to normal is a brave new world. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, uncertainty. We've got more today than we've had for some time. Two, tightening. The Fed's jawboning has been effective. And three, rising distress. Recent movements confirm an up-in-quality view. As always, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the long holiday weekend, at least for those of us in the States. And don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week.